بسم اللہ الرحمن الرحیم نحمد و نسلی علی رسول الکریم اما بعد جزاک اللہ خیرن تو آل آف یو می اللہ ریوارڈ یو آل می اللہ بی کم پلیز ود یو می اللہ سبحان و تعالی گرانٹ یو دا بلیسنگز آف دس لائف اینڈ دا لائف ہیئر آفٹر می اللہ فلفل آل آف یور پرمیسیبل ویشیز می اللہ سبحان و تعالی گرانٹ یو ایز این آفیہ ریموو اینی ڈیفیکلٹیز دا آئی این یور پاتھ ایوری سنگل ون آف یو آئی نو یو ہیو سم کائنڈ آف pain or problem or project or something you're dealing with, I make dua to Allah. Allah makes it very easy for you. Allah removes all the difficulties in your path and Allah safeguards you and your families from all types of calamities and more than anything, may Allah become pleased with everybody. You getting together here today is massive. It's a huge contribution to this cause and it is making a difference. So the first thing I'm going to say is congratulations. Jazakallahu khairan. May Allah reward you, give you more himma. I'm not thinking about today, I'm thinking about tomorrow. So, you're here today with the intention now that inshallah this is going to become a continuation. And when we come next time, we're not going to come alone. Every week we want to be bringing somebody else with us. Right? I think I asked this like last week or the week before. Yeah, some of you have remembered. So, have you brought somebody with you? Yes, no? Yes, you have. MashaAllah, I, I, I see some of you, every week you're coming and you're bringing somebody and you're introducing them. Oh, this is so-and-so, this is so-and-so, this is so-and-so. So if we can start doing this, not just for this cause, any good cause really, isn't this something we should be doing? If you're benefiting, if you're benefiting and you're finding that it's something of good, and it's a sign to me that if you're here again, if you came last week and you've come again, it's a sign to me that there's something you've found here that's been of benefit. Whether it's the Qur'an recitation, whether it's the dhikr, whether it's the discussion we have, or you just enjoy the breakfast, regardless of what it is, it doesn't really matter. But if it's something of benefit, why should we have it alone? Muslims are those that we, we share with other people. So inshallah, make an intention that when we come here every week, we're going to bring somebody along with us. Now, because we've got the um, December holidays coming up, we're going to have a little exception for next week. Next week's going to be slightly different. I won't be running the session next week. Somebody else will. And there's going to be a conference taking place over the weekend, the first annual Kokni conference, this being a Kokni masjid. And they're going to have several programs throughout the day, Saturday and Sunday. So the Fajr program will be dedicated to a family event. There'll be more activities aimed and geared towards children. But we also welcome everybody to attend that as well. So that doesn't mean that you don't turn up because it's next week and we're going to be doing something slightly different. An invitation to everybody, please join that, bring families, bring children as well. But this, our session will continue from the 31st, and not next week, the week after in the way we're doing it now. So next week will be slightly different because of it being holidays, but the program and the event in Fajr will continue, will be slightly different. But yeah, so please be mindful that we make this continuous, inshallah, and we bring somebody else with us. Everyone's making intention, inshallah. Have you thought of that person already who you're going to be bringing? Yeah, you've got like two weeks, 31st. So think of who you're going to be bringing. You've got two weeks to plan. You can't actually bring two people now because you've got two weeks. Yeah, inshallah. I can't hear you. May Allah reward everybody. So we've started a series in regards to the names of Almighty Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And what we learned is the most sacred and blessed and greatest knowledge that you can learn is the knowledge of knowing who is Allah. Who is Allah and how does He work? And one of the most beautiful ways of doing that is through His beautiful names. Asma'ullah al-Husna. The beautiful names of Allah. And we know that Allah has beautiful names because we mentioned four verses of the Qur'an 
wherein Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala speaks about these beautiful names. So we've had two weeks already on this, and we're going through an introduction at the moment in regards to these names. So we spoke about, what did we speak about last week? Let's have a quick recap. What was last week about? The benefits and the fruits of learning the names of Allah, knowing the names of Allah. And we listed nine benefits, didn't we? Or we've forgotten. It's only been a week. We mentioned nine different benefits and fruits of knowing the names of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And this will become transformative for us. Our life will change in its entirety if we learn these names and we'll be living in the names of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Let's have a quick reminder, very quick reminder of what these were. Not in any particular order, anything that you remember. Go on. Okay, we've got two at the same time. So I'll take Ahmad Bai first and then Maulana. So Ahmad Bai is saying it repels sadness. Do you remember this? Anything that can go with it? What did we say? It repels sadness. With every calamity, there's ease. But you'll only know that, you'll only know and believe that if we know Allah. And we know that Allah is with us. And we gave the example of how the Prophet ﷺ was in the cave of Thawr. And Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu, he expressed extreme sadness. And what did the Prophet ﷺ say? La tahzan. Why? Inna Allah ma'ana. Allah is with us. So that's one. Uh, Maulana, you were saying? It creates a longing for Allah. It creates a longing for Allah. What example did we give for that? Yes, the Prophet ﷺ's dua, he used to say that, Oh Allah, as'aluka shawqa ila liqa'ik. Oh Allah, grant me longing to see you and to visit you, to meet you. And at the moment, we don't have that longing, do we? We're not really looking forward. You'll only be looking forward to someone who you know. We gave the example of the student who was sitting right here. Can't see him today, must be somewhere. He does attend regularly. And I asked, do you miss your kids? And he goes, he's only in college. He doesn't have kids. It's, if you don't, if, if there's no, you don't know. For us, even though we have Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, because we don't know him, the way we are ought to know him, the way we are supposed to know him, there's no longing there. So that is another one as well. Another one? Any more? It stops you from thinking negative about Allah. When we know who Allah is, it prevents us from having bad thoughts about Allah. This is a huge benefit in itself. And at times like this, when we are going through challenging times, we need this more than ever before. And in our personal lives as well. In our personal lives, we all go through ups and downs. The next time something happens, which you don't want to happen, if we know Allah, we won't think of, thinking, uh, we won't think of Allah in a negative way. We will see Meaning, even in our struggles as well. What else? Peace and security. Was that one of them? So one of them one is increases the love of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. وَالَّذِينَ آمَنُوا أَشَدُّ حُبَّا لِلَّهِ 
You know, the more you learn about someone, the more you get to know them, you love them even more. Maybe you like somebody because they're good at a sport, for example. But when you know that their character is very kind, and then when you find out they're very generous, and then when you know that they're an expert in X, Y, and Z, and then when you know that they are very good in their personality, in their personal life, then when you know they're a very good talent in something, the more you find out, the more you love them. The more we know about Allah and His sifat, His attributes, it will create longing and love as well. So it will increase us in our love and this is one of our objectives as believers as well. Anything else? Yes, one of them we said at the end that whoever learns them, encompasses them, will enter into Jannah. So learning these names, if there was no other benefit besides this one, this is a huge benefit and a fruit in itself. That by learning these names, or learning about these names even, like what we're doing now. So what you're doing now is something sacred. It's not just about memorizing them. It's about learning them as well, knowing about them, finding out about them. That's also included in the hadith as well. Uh, the Prophet ﷺ has promised that you will enter Jannah. And we're going to speak about that more today, inshallah. Anything else? Yes, the fear of Allah. Learning the names of Allah teaches us how to fear Him. Allah warns you about Himself. Like there's a baby, we gave the example. The baby, we have to teach the baby that this is dangerous. This is a, this is a plug socket. Don't put your fingers in there. This is the fire. This is a stove. This hurts. This, you shouldn't go here. So like in the same way, Allah teaches us how to fear Him. And if we don't know Him through His names, we won't have His fear. And the Quran says, إِنَّمَا يَخْشَ اللَّهَ مِنْ عِبَادِهِ الْعَلَمَاء Only the ulama, meaning those who know Allah, will fear Him. Only those people will fear Allah who know Him. Ulama here means those who know Allah. Not just knowing books or texts or having a certificate. That doesn't qualify you to be a person that fears Allah. A person can know all of the texts. A person can know all of the information. A person can have as many certificates as possible. According to the Quran, it will not qualify you as being this kind of alim who has the fear of Allah. Allah says, That the only the ulama are the ones who fear Allah. Meaning, if you fear Allah, one of the salient qualities of the ulama is that they fear Allah. And that could be anybody now who learns this knowledge, this is the greatest knowledge, because it will lead you to develop the fear of Allah. This is the knowledge that will make you amongst this type of ulama, who fear Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Anything else? I think we've done most of them. Yes, every name is a means of becoming closer to him and knowing him, especially through, so as uh, Brother Muhammad has said, we become a friend of Allah, we become closer to him, especially when we know his names, we know that he is just and kind, and then you show kindness as well. We know he is merciful, so we show mercy as well. We know that he's all listening, so we learn to listen to other people as well. We know he is generous, so we show generosity as well. These are the ways through which we can become closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Um, I think we've done most of them. The only one we haven't done is 
Number eight, which we said it corrects your character. And number seven is it's one of the greatest actions of the heart. One of the greatest actions of the heart. In this world, we traverse on our feet. In the hereafter, we'll be traversing on our, through our hearts. إِلَّا مَنْ أَتَى اللَّهَ بِقَلْبٍ سَلِيمٍ It's one of the greatest things you can do with your heart in this world is to develop a yearning and a knowledge for who Allah is. So let's move on today. Today, inshallah, we are going to take the hadith of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, wherein the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, لِلَّهِ تِسْعَةً وَتِسْعِينَ isma مَنْ أَحْصَاهَا دَخَلَ الْجَنَّةِ For Allah, this is the literal translation of the hadith. For Allah, there are 99 names. And in some hadith it says, 100 except one, meaning 99. Whoever encompasses them, man ahsaha, whoever encompasses them, the Khalil Jannah will enter into paradise. This is the hadith. It appears in Bukhari. It appears in Tirmidhi. It appears in numerous chapters and numerous hadith books. We're going to try and understand what this hadith actually means before we move on to the names of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So, the first thing is, we learn that Allah has names. And we learn that from where? What's our primary source? Quran. When we're speaking about Allah, we can't make it up. Whenever we speak about Allah, we can't make it up. We have to go back to the Quran. Or we have to go to the authentic hadith. When speaking about Allah, you can't just say, uh, this is, I want to say this, or I found it here. No, we go back to the Quran. So this concept that Allah has many names. We take it from the Quran. How many verses are there, did we say? Four. Four verses that clearly tell us that Allah has many beautiful names. But the Quran doesn't give a number. Is a number mentioned in the Quran? No. Where do we get the number from? Because again, we cannot give a number to something like Allah and His names without a reliable source. It has to come from a reliable source. So after the Qur'an, the reliable source is the hadith. So the hadith is the one I've just mentioned to you. لِلَّهِ تِسْعَةً وَتِسْعِينَ isma. مَنْ أَحْصَاهَا دَخَلَ الْجَنَّةِ For Allah, there are 99 names, and whoever encompasses them will enter into paradise. So this is where we take the number 99 from. So the Qur'an proves the names, multiple names, and the hadith proves the number, 99. Now the discussion moves on the number 99. And the question is, does Allah only have 99 names? Or does he have more? Does he have less? And what does it mean by 99 names? Some scholars have gone on to say that yes, the hadith says 99. And we're going to take this hadith because it says in the hadith there are 99 names. We're going to say Allah has 99 names. Some scholars have gone on to say Allah has 99 names because of this hadith. Others have said no. There is sufficient evidence to prove that Allah has more than 99 names. How do we know this? Well, listen along as I explain to you what the scholars of hadith have mentioned. In the hadith of Mustad Ahmad, there is a dua that the Prophet ﷺ would make at the time of calamity. Allahumma inni abduk wa abnu amatik nafsiyati biyadik maadin fi he goes on and then he says as'aluka bi kulli ismin lak sammayta bihi nafsak aw anzaltahu fi ahadim min khalqik 
Oh, oh. So the Prophet says, Oh Allah, I ask of you from all of your beautiful names that you have taught one of your creation. So that means some creation of Allah, some people of Allah know some of Allah's names, some people don't. Oh, oh, you have mentioned it in one of your books. Meaning some books of Allah will mention some names of Allah and some won't. Or oh, oh Allah, you have kept it in your hidden knowledge. In your hidden knowledge and nobody knows. So there are some names of Allah which he has told us. And there are some names of Allah, as we know from this hadith, that he has in his ilm al-ghayb, in the knowledge of the unseen, that nobody knows, not even the prophets. So from here we learn that Allah's names are not only 99, because the Prophet ﷺ has prayed through all the names that are revealed, all the names are in the books, all the names that are not in the books, even the ones which Allah has kept in his infinite and hidden knowledge. Number two. Number three. You know there is a hadith where on the day of judgment, people will be standing. How long will they be standing for? How long will be people standing on the day of judgment waiting? 50,000 years. Just think about it for a moment. 50,000 years. We stand in a queue for two minutes and we get agitated. We get agitated. And nowadays, of course, we've got the mobile. Next time you're in a queue... Right? Don't put your hand in your pocket. And you'll see how distressed we've become from just waiting. We, 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 don't have a, we can't wait anymore. We have to keep ourselves busy and engaged. Imagine 50,000 years without being allowed to move from your place. And the sun is just above you. 50,000 years. And there's no concept of going to eat on that day or going to sleep on that day or going to the toilet on that day. And this will be a, there'll be a situation. And the people will be in a state. Anyhow, after this 50,000 years, people will say, you know what, we need to get this reckoning started. So they'll say, let's, let's do something about it. And people will go to Adam alayhi salam. And from prophet to prophet, they will go and say, go and speak to Allah. And the prophets will say, that, no, I can't. I can't speak to Allah today. I did such and such. Go to so and so prophet. And like this, they will come to who? The Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam, this is known as hadith al-shafa'ah. And then the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam will say that I will go to Allah. And then I will prostrate to Allah. And he says, Allah will teach me a way to praise him. Allah will give me such words which I have never used before. And the ulama mention from amongst these words of praise will be Allah's special names which we have never heard before. So again, the ulama mentioned, this is also an indication that Allah has way more than 99 names. It's not just the 99. Number four. One of the duas of the Prophet wasallam. you will have heard me mentioning this as well. The Prophet wasallam would praise Allah by saying, Allahumma la uhsi thana'an alayk, anta kama athnayta ala nafsik. Allahumma la uhsi thana. Oh Allah, I cannot encompass the praises for you. Well, I want to praise you with every single possible way, but I can't encompass them all. La uhsi thana an alayk. I can't get every praise of yours and mention them. I'm trying to say some, but I will never be. Anta kama athnayta ala. Allah, you are as you have praised yourself. Anta kama athnayta ala nafsik. 
Oh Allah, you are as you have praised yourself. Again from this we learn that the names of Allah are not confined to only 99. And the last fifth one is logical proof shows us that if we were to study the Quran and study the Hadith, you'll find more than 99. If you look through the Quran and start collecting the names and then look through the Hadith, you will come to more than 99. You won't have just 99. You'll come to more than 99 names of Allah. And this is why many scholars have written books on the 99 names of Allah. Some have listed more than 100. Some have gone up to 200. Some have done more. Some have done less. But ulama of the past have had this habit of compiling names of Allah based on the Quran and the Hadith. And they found more than 99. So now you might be asking, well, why does the Hadith say Allah has 99 names? For example, if I was to say, I've got 99 pounds for anybody who learns the 99 names of Allah. Does that mean I only have 99 pounds? Is everyone following? If I say, I've got 99 pounds for anyone who learns the 99 names of Allah. That doesn't mean I only have 99 names. Meaning for this purpose... For this purpose, meaning whoever learns 99 for those people will be Jannah. Meaning for this purpose, for the memorization or the compilation or the encompassing or the learning or the studying of these 99, Allah promises Jannah. Meaning to enter Jannah, this is a prize and for that there is 99. Now, what does it mean to encompass them. Man al-jannah. Last week I touched upon this. There are different ways of encompassing the names of Allah. Number one would be to ascertain. One is one way of man al-jannah. Whoever encompasses these names will enter paradise. Number one, the first meaning of this is whoever ascertains those names. Meaning you go through the Quran, it's a process, it's an effort. Which is the name of Allah, which isn't a name of Allah. So going through the names of Allah, trying to understand, learning about what we're doing now. Literally what we're doing now. This is one way of whoever encompasses the names will enter into Jannah. Number one. Number two. The second meaning the ulama have mentioned is whoever memorizes them. And mashallah, many people memorize the names of Allah. It's not difficult. Uh, young children do it. And as long as you keep saying, I can't do it, you won't do it. As long as you keep saying that, I, I can't do it. I'm not good with phone numbers. Right? Some people say, I'm not good with learning phone numbers. Well, if you keep saying, I'm not good at learning phone numbers, guess what? You'll never get any better. You'll just, you'll just not be good at learning phone numbers. If you say that, I'm not good at learning phone numbers right now or yet, I've not become good at learning them, but I'm going to try, you've created some hope for you. And tomorrow, you'll be better than you were today. Because you've allowed yourself to move forward. Once the Prophet ﷺ told a young person, he saw him eating with his left hand. And he told him, eat with your right hand. And he said, I can't. He could. His right hand was perfectly fine. He said, I can't. And the Prophet ﷺ told him, yes, you can. Eat with your right hand. He said, I can't. Whereas he could. And he said to him, eat with your right hand. And he said, I can't. So the Prophet ﷺ said, okay, you won't. He said, لَسْتَطَعْتُ, I can't. And the Prophet ﷺ said, if you, if you deliberately disable yourself in this way, you limit yourself, and Allah has not limited you. 
Allah hasn't limited you and told you that you can't learn this. We limit ourselves. And what happens then? We become limited. So don't limit yourselves in areas that Allah hasn't limited you because Allah hasn't limited you. We limit ourselves. When we put our mind to anything, it's achievable. Allah has given you great potential. So now there's already some of you thinking, I can't learn the 99 names of Allah. It's not possible. Well, you've already, you've limited yourself where Allah hasn't, Allah hasn't limited you. You've put that limit there. So it's doable, it's achievable. We've learned things, when we put our mind to it, we can do it. If you want to do it, it's, it's doable. Yes, some of us may struggle more than others. That doesn't mean it's not possible. You're not in competition. You don't have to do it in one day like your next door neighbor did it. You don't have to do it in a week. It could take you longer, but it's achievable. So first of all, leave that door open. Don't shut that door on yourself because Allah hasn't closed it on you. So this guy, you know what happened to him? His right hand became paralyzed because he paralyzed himself before it became paralyzed. So don't paralyze yourself. Allah has given you the capabilities. So one of the ways to attain this is to memorize them. And the third way is to make dua through them. Because the Quran says, husna biha." Allah says, He has beautiful names. Use them to make dua and call Him. So this is one of the things that we ought to do, is do this and we will get Jannah. And number four is to live by them. Is to live by them. Characterize yourself with the beautification of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. He's merciful, become an embodiment of mercy. He is kind, you become kind. He's generous, you become generous. He is fair, you become fair. Live by the names of Allah and you'll see a transformation in your life. Now, 99 names, what are they? What are the 99 names of Allah? Now normally, you've seen, who's seen 99 names of Allah? Who's seen them? Actually, let me ask you a different way. Is there anyone who hasn't seen the 99 names of Allah? Everybody's seen, you've seen it, you probably got it hung up in your house. You've got it in some masjids. We've got it right here, right in front of us. If you haven't seen them, just look in this dome beautifully. Um, the calligraphy you can see here, it's, it's there. You can see the names of Allah. Now, let me just give you some background into these 99 names and how they came about. Because as a Muslim, this is knowledge about Allah. And every Muslim has a right to know this. This is, not, this is nothing complicated. This is not an academic discussion. We're talking about Allah. How can that be academic? We're talking about Allah. So this is something every Muslim must know. It's basic knowledge. So, Regarding these 19, this list of 99 names, where does it come from? Like, Huwa Rahman, Ar-Rahim, Al-Malik, Al-Quddus, As-Salam, the one that you normally see. So in the Hadith of Bukhari Muslim, it only says that Allah has 99 names, whoever learns them, memorizes them, encompasses them, will enter Jannah. And the Hadith stops there. It doesn't tell you what the 99 names of Allah are. When we come to the Hadith of Tirmidhi, in Tirmidhi you find the same Hadith, Allah has 99 names. Whoever learns them, memorizes them, will enter paradise. And then the hadith continues and it says, and these names are, and there's a list. These names are, and then it says, Rahman, Ar-Rahim, Al-Malik, Al-Quddus, As-Salam, Al-Mu'min. Now to learn and to understand very well, this addition at the end, and these names are, and the list, 
This is not from the Prophet ﷺ. This is not part of the hadith. These are not the words of Rasulullah ﷺ. The narrator of the hadith, Walid ibn Muslim, we call this idraj. In the science of hadith, this is an addition into the hadith. What he did was, when he was narrating the hadith, he narrated the hadith. And then based on his own research that he did, he says that these names are, and then he said a list. And then later on when his students came, when they narrated the hadith, they narrated the full hadith as if it was from the Prophet ﷺ, that the Prophet ﷺ said, Allah has 99 names, whoever learns them will enter into Jannah, and these 99 names of Allah are, and then the whole list. Whereas there's a separation between the actual hadith and the names. So the names, remember, these names that have been listed, this 99. So remember, the hadith has not allocated a certain 99 names. There's no certain fixed allocation. That it has to be these 99. These were done by Walid ibn Muslim, who's a great person in himself. He's a hadith narrator. He's a great scholar, great person, which is perfectly fine to use these 99. But do we understand the dis- distinction over here? That they are not from the Prophet ﷺ. That's his own understanding and interpretation which he placed there. And that is what commonly become known and which is perfectly fine as well. Now, what is the benefit of not knowing which 99 names? Because we've been told 99 names, you can go to Jannah. Do we have another similar concept to this where we don't know about something? We've been told that it's very holy, it's very special, very blessed. But we don't have a specific Laylatul Qadr. What's the benefit of Laylatul Qadr being hidden? What's the benefit? You have to struggle for it. You find it. You work hard. And you're constantly at it in those last 10 nights. And the ulama mentioned here is the same thing. That you are constantly working. You are constantly, when you're reading the Qur'an... It's, you have a mission to be looking out for this. When you're hearing the hadith, you've got a mission to be looking out for it. When you're engaging with Allah's creation every single day, you're on a mission to find out and learn about who is Allah. This is a mission of life which is continuous, 24-7. You are trying to work to get to know Allah better all of the time. This is the hikmah the ulama have mentioned of keeping them hidden and not being told a list that here you go, these are the 99. Um, now, the ulama have gone on to, like, how do you define that a name is a name of Allah? How, how do you work that out? So I'm going to give you some of the principles that the ulama have used, just to give you an idea. So, the first and most important principle is, any name of Allah, or any name in, that appears in the Quran, with alif and lam, like al like Al-Quddus, for example. Ar-Rahman, Ar-Rahim, Alif and Lam. That is definitely going to be a name of Allah. And some ulama went down the path of using only this, like Ibn Hazm al-Zahiri, for example. He said any name, he only believes that the names that believe with Alif and Lam, only they are names of Allah. And he tried, but he only managed to gather about 80. So that doesn't even add up to 99. So that's only in the Qur'an he looked. Um, so that's criteria number one. Number two is the ulama have said those which appear with a tanween, 
like fathatain, dhammatain, they appear with that. That's number two. Number three, authentic hadith. There are authentic hadith which tell you about Allah's names. The Prophet ﷺ called out to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So that's our third source. Number four, some ulama, what they did was they extracted names of Allah from certain verbs. For example, uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the Quran, he says, uh, And he gives honor to who he wants. And he disgraces who he wants. He's the one, he's, it's a verb. He honors. So they said, okay, from here we can take a name of Allah, Al-Mu'iz. And he, وَتُذِلُّ and he disgraces. We can take a name of Allah, Al-Mudil, the one who disgraces. Can you see? So some of the ulama have said, yes, we can derive a name of Allah from these kind of things as well. Now a question always arises over here, which is very common, and every single one of you have faced this question. So I'm going to address it now because it will be very useful. Can you name yourself or your child or anybody after one of Allah's names without using Abdul before it? It's a very common question, right? Can you call yourself Rahim, for example? Can somebody be called Rauf? Can somebody be called Razak? Can somebody be called Latif, for example? Is that possible? So the simple answer to this is, remember, in the names of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, there are some which are exclusive for Allah. The attribute is exclusive for Allah. Those names you cannot use without Abdul. Can you give me an example of something that is exclusively for Allah? Oh, obviously Allah itself. No one's, no one's going to call themselves Allah. But Ilah, for example. Okay, so it will be Abdul Ilah, like that. Okay, Razak. Razak, for example. Razak, you can't call somebody, you can't call somebody Razak. Because... Razak is only Allah. Okay, so there you would have to say Abdul Razak. Can you call somebody Rahim? Yes, because Allah has called the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam wabil mu'minina Raufun Rahim. He even his name is Raufun Rahim. So you can call somebody Rauf by, for example. Okay, you don't have to say Abdul Rauf. Abdul Rauf, yes, is Ar Rauf is Allah, but somebody can be Rauf as well. Kind, gentle with other people. Similarly, Rahim. Rahim is being merciful. Allah is Ar-Rahim, the merciful, but you can't call somebody just Rahim. Um, okay. So, Rahman, again, you, you can't be compassionate and merciful. Ar-Rahman is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So, this is where we understand, where some of the names, for example, Jamil, you can call somebody Jamil, okay? And some say that is also one of Allah's names as well. So this is where we have a distinction. Those things which are exclusive for Allah, those names you cannot keep uh, without having the Abdul before it. Otherwise, those which are not, then you can use them. Um, there are some names which it's better, although you can call somebody, it may be better not to. And we take this guidance from the Quran. For example, one of Allah's names is Jabbar. Jabbar. Jabbar means the compeller, the one who forces, the one who compels. Now, can a human being be Jabbar? Yes, they can. We've got many Jabbar people around. But it's better not to. Yes, Abdul Jabbar is fine, but to only Jabbar? 
Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala negated both of these from Yahya and Isa alayhi salam in the Quran. He negated them. When Isa alayhi salam spoke in the cradle, what did he say? وَلَمْ يَجْعَلْنِي جَبَّارًا شَقِيًّا Allah didn't make me jabbar. So, it's better not to. You can, but the ulama mentioned it's better not to have these names. And when the ulama compiled these names of Allah, they didn't necessarily have a fixed categorization. Ibn al-Qayyim rahmatullah, this is the ulama, didn't have any. Some of them went on to making a list of the names of Jamal and the names of Jalal. Those which manifest Allah's beauty and the others which manifest Allah's majesty. Um, this is how you could categorize them. There's different ways of categorizing them. Um, but this is what, where we, inshallah, will stop over here. What are we taking with us today? Well, I'm asking you, what are you taking with you today? From what we've discussed, what are you taking home today? What has inspired you and what lesson are you taking away with you? Let me hear from you. Gee, any one thing? Okay, so you've been inspired to actually learn the names of Allah. Subhanallah, that's amazing. What else? I want to hear from you. Now, if you're not inspired, maybe I can start all over again. Okay, so we said that one of the first criteria that the scholars had to define whether one is a name of Allah or not is they look for the ones with Alif Lam. That's, the first, that's not the only criteria, but the first criteria, yep. Anything else? MashaAllah. So you were inspired by learning the sources and how they came about and the benefits of learning the 99 names of Allah. Let's have a couple more, inshallah. Yes. Okay, so it's not limited to 99. There's more than 99, of course. What else? Nobody from this side has spoke. Let's have somebody from the left. We're having only Ashabul Yameen. Okay, so defining how we know or how we don't know this, whether there's a 99 or more. And Mawlana referred to the hadith where the Prophet ﷺ made the dua very specifically and he said, I ask you through the names that you have revealed to some of your creation, you have revealed in some of your books, or you have kept hidden in your knowledge. From which we know that there are more than the ones that we have seen or heard of. One more, inshallah, from this side. Come on, guys. Or anyone. Yes. That's a good one. We shouldn't limit ourselves to think that we can't do something. We can, right? If you put our mind to something, can we do it? Like you guys are here, right, in the morning. Uh, if we were at home, maybe we would have thought, oh, I can't, I, can't, I can't make it for Fajr. I can't make it to the Fajr campaign. It's difficult. I can't do it. But you're here. Yes. Sorry? Yeah. Oh, for children's names, yes. So for children's names, yes, we can, we can think of, be mindful of using the names of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But how we use them, we've gone through that as well of how you can go about this. Inshallah, we'll stop here.
And when we continue uh, in two weeks' time, inshallah, on the 31st, we're going to start going into the first one or two names we're going to be taking, inshallah, and our journey will start from there. We'll, we'll speak about the name, where it appears, why, what, how it impacts you every single day, every single moment in your life, and what you can do to build on that, inshallah. So it's a very exciting journey. There's nothing more sacred than learning the names of Allah. So inshallah, we will continue then. Let's go on to our lesson. What lesson number is it today? 27. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. What do you know about Masjid al-Aqsa, lesson 27? We're speaking about the Islamic history of Jerusalem. And this is part 7 of the Islamic history of Jerusalem. And specifically today our discussion is going to be about the British occupation of Jerusalem and Palestine. Last session we ended the Ottoman Ottoman Empire and how that got dismantled. And now we have come onto the British occupation. Under the leadership of Theodor Herzl, the first Zionist Congress convened in Basel, Switzerland in 1897, initiating institutional Zionist political action. On the 2nd of November 1917, the banker Rothschild obtained the Balfour Declaration from the British Foreign Secretary Balfour confirming the establishment of a national homeland for Jews in Palestine. In the same year, British forces led by General Allenby occupied the holy city of Jerusalem. Britain was committed to establishing a Jewish national homeland in Palestinian territories, leading to increased Jewish immigration. Zionist groups proliferated, prompting Palestinian revolution against British rule and the emergence of secret resistance movements. Now, this is very important. Because Palestine was filled with Palestinians, the notion that they gave at that time, and sadly it's still repeated, that it's a land without a people for a people without a land. Like, how false is that? A land, just think about what's being said. These were the statements that were used and are still being used to justify the mass genocide and ethnic cleansing of Palestinians back then, and it's still being used now. A land without a people for a people without a land. Was Palestine a land without a people? Right? No one with a sane mind will believe this. So how can the Zionist movement and the British get away with such statements? How can they get away with it? Because you don't have to go far. You just have to go to the British census, because they were occupying Palestine at that time. Go to their registers and you will see the thousands and thousands of villages and people that were living there. You can go to the Ottoman records that were there and are still found till today. And you can see the name of each and every person that lived in every single village. It's all documented, registered, recorded. This is why people like Golda Meir, one of the prime ministers of Israel, in the beginning you find her saying that I am Palestinian, I held a Palestinian passport and this she's showing it. And later on the same woman is saying there's no such thing as Palestine. Palestine doesn't exist. There's no such thing as a Palestinian. So a land without a people for a people without a land. These kind of things were used. What does it mean? What are they trying to say? 
very clearly what they're saying. And Wiseman, who was one of the Zionist founders, came from Europe. He actually said, now we asked the British about the population of Palestine. And they told us that they're just about a few hundred thousand Negroes. These are the words used. So this is European racism that is inbound in these colonial settler movements. This is a colonial racist Western settler movement which has created this thinking, of course they knew there were people there. What they're trying to say that these people that are there are not worthy of being called people. They're not worthy of living there. We don't consider them as humans. They are animals. They are beasts. They are worth nothing. How can you say a land without a people? Of course, there were people there. There were thousands of people there. There are still people there for a people without a land. So this is a false notion. And on the basis of this, and even today, even today, you will find, if you've been listening to the, to the, to the interviews and everything, people are still quoting this and saying, what they are saying is, yeah, yeah, people were living there, but they didn't know how to, they weren't civilized. They didn't know how to, look what we, we've made Israel modern. They didn't bring anything to Israel. They didn't do anything for it. They left the lands as they were. Look what word, they didn't, they didn't know how to treat it. So we took them out and we are now looking after this land. I mean, even if that was true, it's not true, first of all, because they were very selective in which reports they took. Different people throughout the years have traveled to the land of Palestine. And if you're taking narratives of people who arrived in Palestine in the winter months, after there'd been years of drought and famine, after American invasion and attacks and wars, and you came at a time when the weather was very dull, the farming had been suffering, and the lands were dry, and then you took pictures or you took a report and went back and told people that it's a land which is not being taken care of. I mean, of course, someone's going to come to that conclusion. But there is no shortage of non-Muslims who visited. There was one of the travelers who visited, and he described Palestine as one of the rolling hills of Scotland. You know how in Scotland, in the summer months, you've got daisies and you've got flower and you've got lush mountains and greens. They descri- you'll find this. There's no shortage of it. That's just one description. But they were very selective in where, what they took. And they said it's a land without a people for a people without a land using this to justify and exactly what's happening even now as well. So this, was, this is the beginning of when it started and how it continues. So Britain was committed. Now, because, because people came to Palestine and they massacred thousands of people, they dispersed thousands of people, they wiped away hundreds of villages... This now prompted the emergence of secret resistance movements. A resistance, so somebody said that if there was no occupation, there'd be no need for any resistance. The resistance movements only stand up because of an invading occupation. So this re, the emergence of the resistance movements, such as the first jihadist movement led by Izzuddin al-Qassam. When we use this, this is the thing. The use of the word jihadist, it just automatically makes it sound wrong. It makes it sound like these new words that have been coined like terrorism, for example. If it's a Muslim, it's a terrorism act. But the Israeli occupation can go and kill and massacre and commit a genocide. But no, no, it's, that's not a terrorism. Why? Because Israel has a right to defend itself. 
Do Palestinians not have a right to defend themselves? So Palestinians, because their land was being taken over by the colonialists, they started resisting. And these were resistance movements. You can call it a resistance movement. You can call it a jihadist movement. You can call it whatever you want. It's just standing up to injustice, which internationally is perfectly legal and allowed. And anybody would do it in any country. So some of these resistance movements, for example, the one led by Izzuddin al-Qassam, the old second one was called the Holy Jihad Organization, led by Abdul Qadir al-Husseini, and the third one was called the Green Palm, led by Ahmed Tafish. These groups were formed, why? Because of the then British occupation that came and started stealing Palestinian land. The first major uprising was in 1920, the 1920 revolution during the Prophet Musa season. There was a season called Mosim Nabi Musa. This was initiated by Salahuddin Ayyubi Rahmatullah Alayh. So many, many years ago. Salahuddin Ayyubi Rahmatullah Alayh, after dispelling the crusaders, he initiated a religious political ceremony. This is not an Islamic thing. But he used his brain... He used the consultation. He looked at what's happening on the ground and realized that there is a serious threat to Masjid al-Aqsa, to Jerusalem and Palestine. Because he didn't want to make it such. He knew that Christians have a lot of significance in Jerusalem. So he didn't want to make it such that, yes, we've driven the Christians out because they've been killing our people mercilessly and also killing, killing the Jews. But he was tactful and he was understanding that they have an annual celebration at the time of Easter, which is the holiest time for Christians, even more than Christmas. So he should allow them to come and visit. So he opened the doors. He says, Christians from all over are allowed to come to Jerusalem. Visit your most holiest places. However, what he did at the same time, annually, he kept a religious political ceremony and named it Mosim Nabi Musa, the Nabi Musa festival. It would happen in Nabi Musa, which is in Jericho, not too far from Jerusalem. And Muslims from all over, thousands of Muslims would be uh, invited to attend. They would have processions, they would have celebrations, they would have nasheeds, they would have food stalls, they would have activities for children, they would have speeches, they would have lectures. Muslims would get together and it would be a time of just rejoicing. But the main aim is, with the influx of so many Christians coming from all over the world, recently we've just had the Crusader occupation where we lost Masjid al-Aqsa for 88 years. We don't want that to happen again. So with the presence of Muslims celebrating, in case anything like that was to happen, well, this would become a deterrent. So this continued. In 1920, now we're talking about recent time, 1920, the Mosim Nabi Musa festival was going on. And at that time, during the British occupation, some of the Jews that they had bought to Jerusalem, they started attacking the procession of Mosim Nabi Musa, the Nabi Musa festival, uh, burning some of the flags, attacking the people that were taking part in the procession. And this, was then, this then led to the, uh, the 1920 Jerusalem riots, which we call pursued by British forces, Haj Amin al-Husseini um, is the one who led a full-scale revolt against the British occupation. Al-Haj Amin al-Husseini said, this is not on. Why are these people coming and attacking something we've been doing for so many years? This is not on. So he got the Muslims together and he said, we should stand up against the injustice. This is not terrorism. 
This is standing up against injustice, people invading your country, coming out from nowhere, and then attacking your religious rights and your celebrations. So he led this against the British occupation, and the British forces then chased him, and they pursued him. Hajj Amin al-Husseini, he fled to, at that time, what was known as Transjordan. And then, under public pressure, there was a lot of public pressure, that why you have to allow him to come back. Because of the public pressure, he forced the British authorities to permit him to return. And when he returned to Jerusalem this time, he actually assumed the position of the Mufti of Jerusalem only at the age of 25 years old. He's only 25. And he becomes the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem, Al-Hajj Amin Al-Husseini. And he led the revolutions from inside Masjid Al-Aqsa because... This was something continuous, managing the political resistance, confronting the British authorities, and covertly aiding the weapon imports for the resistance. Why? Because the people in Palestine didn't have anything. And they were being attacked left, right, and center. So they were standing up against the injustice that was being carried out. At the young age, Hajj Amin al-Husseini became the Mufti of Jerusalem at 25, and later he established the Supreme Islamic Council, Al-Majlis Al-A'la Al-Islami The Supreme Islamic Council of Jerusalem Overseeing the affairs of Masjid Al-Aqsa The council's initial major undertaking Was announcing Masjid Al-Aqsa's comprehensive restoration So at that time there was a need to do some work The Al-Qibli Musalla had developed cracks over time The Dome of the Rock required extensive maintenance The restoration began in 1923 Funded by donations from the Islamic world in 1927, so when was this done? In 1923, they started, he established the Supreme Islamic Council and he started working on some of the renovation projects inside Masjid Al-Aqsa. In 1927, there was a severe earthquake and the engineers said that had the 1923 renovations not been completed by Al-Hajj Amir Al-Husseini, the Musalla Qibli would have collapsed. That's how severely it was in need of repair. We spoke about the Balfour Declaration. I'm going to read it out to you. The Balfour Declaration, which was signed on the 2nd of November, 1917. The letter reads, Dear Lord Rothschild, I am pleased to convey on behalf, I am pleased to convey on behalf of His Majesty's government the following declaration of sympathy with Jewish Zionist aspirations as approved by the cabinet. His Majesty's government supports establishing a national home for the Jewish people in Palestine and will endeavor to facilitate this goal. It is understood that nothing shall be done to prejudice the civil and religious rights of non-Jewish communities in Palestine or the rights and political status of Jews elsewhere. Please inform the Zionist Federation of this declaration, Arthur James Balfour. So this is what we refer to as the Balfour Declaration signed in 1917. In 1924, going forward now, the Supreme Islamic Council, who was run by Al-Hajj Amin Al-Husseini, he fundraised globally for Masjid Al-Aqsa's renovation. So he went around different countries, Chanda basically, and asking donations for the renovation projects of Masjid Al-Aqsa. Sharif Hussein at that time, he donated 24,000 golden liras, equivalent to $6 million uh, today. That's how much he gave. And that was a significant contribution, and it went towards the project of the Musalla Qibli specifically. And this was known as the first 
Hashemite renovation uh, done on behalf of the Jordanian Waqf. What's the concept of resistance? Resistance in political science. Political science, if you study, you will learn that there is something called a legal uh, right that people have to resist. Resistance is universally recognized as a right against illegitimate rulers. This is recognized. Article 35 of the 1793 French Declaration of the Rights of Man and the Citizen States, that revolution becomes the most, or resistance becomes the most sacred right and duty when rulers violate the people's rights. A resistor is one who opposes injustice, fighting passionately against existing authorities deemed illegitimate and contrary to his ideals. This is what you call resistance. And this you find it in the Dictionary of International Politics and Constitutional Terms. So, the Palestinian resistance continues. Following the 1920 Prophet Musa season revolution, the 1921 Yafa revolution erupted. Increased Jewish immigration and British occupation led to escalating Jewish attacks, culminating in the 1929 Burak wall incident in Masjid al-Aqsa, which sparked something called Thawratul Burak, meaning the Burak wall revolution. I'll tell you a bit about that now. So the Burak Wall, this happened in 1929. Throughout Islamic history, Jerusalem allowed freedom of worship for all three religions, Christians, Jews, and Muslims. The Ottoman Empire never banned Jews from the western wall of Masjid al-Aqsa, also known as the Burak Wall. So the Jews, they worship at the western wall of Masjid al-Aqsa. It's a wall of Masjid al-Aqsa. If this is, imagine this being all of Masjid al-Aqsa, if this is Masjid al-Aqsa, if we say that is, for example, the eastern wall of Masjid al-Aqsa, we'll call this the western wall of Masjid al-Aqsa. If you're in Masjid al-Aqsa now, right, and this is the Qibla, this is how it would look exactly now. I would be here, this is the Qibla would be behind me, okay, the Dome of the Rock would be in the center, say under this dome. This wall on my left is the western wall. So where the Jews are worshipping are just behind this wall. It's the same wall, it's the wall of Masjid al-Aqsa. And we call this western wall, we call it the Burak wall. Why? Because it is at this wall, Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam tied the Burak on the journey of Isra and Mi'raj. When he came, he said, I tied the Burak. He tied it somewhere along that wall. And thus we call this the Burak wall. Or it's a western wall of Masjid al-Aqsa. And that's the same wall that you call here being referred to as the Wailing Wall. So it's the same, exactly the same wall, it's just on the other side of the wall. So the Ottomans allowed the Jews to come and pray at the Western Wall. However, after the British occupation and Zionist movement's encouragement, attempts were made to alter the site status quo. So they were coming and worshipping, but there was this encroachment. In 1928, Zionists set up a worship space opposite the Barak Wall. There's now an extra space created now. And installing a curtain to separate men and women prayer areas, including the use of the shofar horn, they started blowing the horn. They were allowed to come and worship. But then these additional things which were being added, which were not agreed with beforehand, these actions led to the Arab protests against the British authorities. In 1929, the British ordered the removal of the curtain. The British said that curtain has to go. That was never agreed beforehand. You come and pray, but adding more and more things and taking more and more area, that was never agreed. Um, that led to violent marches and the proclamation by the Jews, they started proclaiming, they started marches and their chant was, the wall is our wall. The wall is our wall. This is what they were saying. 
This sparked the Barak revolution against the British occupation's complicity with the Zionists and Jewish immigration. The revolution spread across Palestine, resulting in 116 martyrs and 232 wounded on the Arab side, and 133 Zionists killed with 239 wounded. The British attempted to quell the uprising by issuing death sentences to those who were part of the revolutionaries and imposing economic sanctions on Palestinians. Then they formed something called the Shaw Commission. This was done by the British government to investigate what actually happened and what led to this revolution. It was recommended that Britain adheres to its commitments in the 1922 White Paper and that an international commission determine the rights of Arabs and Jews to the Burak Wall. In 1930, the League of Nations sent a committee whose report affirmed that the wall belonged to the Muslims. They affirmed after the investigation, the wall belonged to the Muslims of, as part of Masjid Al-Aqsa. They referred to it as Al-Haram Al-Sharif in the document where we're talking about Al-Masjid Al-Aqsa. In 1936, the significant Great Palestinian Revolution erupted due to the increased Zionist immigration. It encompassed all cities and lasted three years. The Supreme Islamic Council, led by Hajj Amin al-Husseini, played a pivotal role in supporting the Palestinian resistance. As the leader of the Palestinian, uh, Palestinians, Qazim uh, uh, al-Husseini passed away, uh, al-Hajj Amin al-Husseini took over. Despite multiple assassination attempts, Amin al-Husseini continued his struggle even after his expulsion from Palestine until his death and burial in Lebanon in 1974. The Zionist occupation, even now, they admit and they say that al-Hajj Amin al-Husseini was a thorn in our throats. Had it not been for al-Hajj Amin al-Husseini and his resistance the occupation would have carried out what they did 50 years before. They would point to him and say, this man has delayed us in our projects 50 years. This is the impact of one person. The League of Nations established a committee to resolve the dispute over Jewish and Muslim rights and claims at the Wailing Wall. So who does this wall belong to? So at that time, the League of Nations, they got together. The committee's 1930 report endorsed by the British government became a significant international document. The key findings of the report included, these are the points that were found after the investigation done by the British government. And these are the points that they agreed upon. Number one, the Western Wall and the adjacent sidewalk, meaning the paths that were there, are solely Muslim property, as they are part of Al-Haram Al-Sharif, meaning Al-Masjid Al-Aqsa. Number one. Number two, Jews may place items of worship near the wall, but this does not establish any property rights for them in the wall or the adjacent area. This was number two. Number three, Jews are free to make supplications at the wall at any time, so they can come and pray as they were doing throughout that period. Number four, it is forbidden to bring tents, curtains, or similar equipment to the wall. And number five, blowing the shofar horn near the wall is prohibited. So this is what was the conclusion of the investigation that was done and internationally, this document was accepted that the right of this wall is a solely Muslim right. And Jews can come and pray there, but they can't do anything more than that. Despite the British mandate and the Zionist colonialism at the time, the committee confirmed the Islamic nature of the Barak wall uh, and allowing Jews only visitation rights. So they went ahead and they said, look, you can't do this, but 
Sadly, this wasn't adhered to and they continued. And from here, we'll move on, inshallah. And in the next, in two weeks' time, inshallah, we'll move on to the current Israeli occupation and how that came about and how that's impacting us now as well. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give us the tawfiq. Now, inshallah, we'll give some time for Quran recitation. I'm going to finish the ayah that we're on and hand the Quran to those who are collecting and then come and assemble and gather here at the front. Jazakumullah khairan. If we can get together quickly, inshallah, we can start. And very soon after dhikr, we'll have dua and then it'll be time for ishraq. Two rakat we will pray. You get the reward of hajj and umrah. A complete hajj and umrah. How awesome is that? A complete hajj and umrah. And you pray another two rakat and Allah will make the affairs of the entire day easy for you. He'll become your protector. He'll become your caretaker. And he'll look after your needs, inshallah. Recite the Rusharif, Allahumma salli ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala ali Sayyidina Muhammad wa barik wa sallam. La ilaha illallah, 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 <laughs> Allah, 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 Subhanallah, Subhanallah, 
ولا إله إلا الله والله أكبر ولا حول ولا قوة إلا بالله العلي العظيم سبحان الله والحمد لله ولا إله إلا الله والله أكبر ولا حول ولا قوة إلا بالله العلي العظيم سبحان الله وبحمده سبحان الله 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 العظيم استغفر الله 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 الله والله 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 لا إله إلا الله محمد رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم اللهم صل على سيدنا محمد وعلى آل سيدنا محمد كما صليت على إبراهيم وعلى آل إبراهيم إنك حميد مجيد اللهم بارك على سيدنا محمد وعلى آل سيدنا محمد كما باركت على إبراهيم وعلى آل إبراهيم إنك حميد مجيد يا ذا الجلال والإكرام يا ذا الجلال والإكرام يا ذا الجلال والإكرام لا إله إلا أنت سبحانك إني كنت من الظالمين وإلهكم إله واحد لا إله إلا هو الرحمن الرحيم يا حي يا قيوم يا حي يا قيوم يا حي يا قيوم برحمتك نستغيث أصلح لنا شأننا كله ولا تكلنا إلى أنفسنا طرفة عين اللهم لا أحسي ثناء عليك أنت كما أثنيت على نفسك اللهم لا أحسي ثناء عليك أنت كما أثنيت على نفسك اللهم لا أحسي ثناء عليك أنت كما أثنيت على نفسك 
نفسك جز الله عنا سيدنا محمد صلى الله عليه وسلم ما هو أهله رضينا بالله ربا وبالإسلام دينا وبمحمد صلى الله عليه وسلم رسولا ونبيا الحمد لله الذي هدانا لهذا وما كنا لنهتدي لولا أن هدانا الله اللهم لك الحمد كله ولك الشكر كله ربنا ظلمنا أنفسنا وإن لم تغفر لنا وترحمنا لنكونن من الخاسرين رب اغفر وارحم تجاوز عما تعلم إنك أنت الأعز الأكرم رب اغفر وارحم أنت خير الراحمين رب اغفر وارحم أنت خير الراحمين رب اغفر وارحم أنت خير الراحمين O kind and loving Allah O most merciful and compassionate Allah O Allah you are the all forgiving you are the most forgiving you are the only one that can forgive our sins O Allah you love to forgive sins O Allah so pardon all our sins O Allah overlook our mistakes O Allah forgive our shortcomings O Allah turn our sins into good deeds O Allah Allah create the hatred of sins in our hearts O Allah help us to abstain from your disobedience O Allah grant us the inner strength O Allah grant us a life of taqwa O Allah grant us your awareness O Allah increase us in our love for you O Allah grant us closeness to you O Allah Allah increases in our conviction O Allah increases in our yaqeen and our iman O Allah grant us the love of the Quran O Allah increase us in our love for the sunnah of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam help us to revive the sunnah within our homes O Allah O Allah put an end to the haram in our lives O Allah and grant us a life of halal O Allah grant us a life that pleases you O Allah help us to stay away from those things that displease you O Allah and grant us a life of your pleasure O Allah O Allah have mercy on the ummah O Allah shower your mercy on the ummah O Allah protect the ummah O Allah safeguard the ummah O Allah guide the ummah O Allah shower the ummah with your mercy O Allah Assist those who are suffering, O oh Allah. Alleviate their sufferings, O oh Allah. You come to their aid and their assistance, O oh Allah. Have mercy on the people of Gaza, O oh Allah. Have mercy on the people of Palestine, O oh Allah. Shower them with your blessings, O oh Allah. Grant them your special protection, O oh Allah. From in front and from behind, O oh Allah. From above and beneath, O oh Allah. On the right and on the left, O oh Allah. You become their aid, O oh Allah. You come to their rescue, O oh Allah. Grant them your victory, O oh Allah. Grant them your protection, O oh Allah. Grant them sustenance, O Allah, from where they least expect it, O Allah. O Allah, you become theirs, O Allah. Become their aid, O Allah. Become their help, O Allah. Become the assistance that they need, O Allah. O Allah, help them to remain firm, O Allah. Reward them, O Allah. Reward them, O Allah. Reward them on behalf of the entire ummah, O Allah. Those who have left the world from amongst them, count them amongst the shuhada, O Allah. Those who are suffering, grant them afia and shifa, O Allah. Those who are living in fear, grant them safety and security, O oh Allah. Put an end to the occupation, O oh Allah. Put an end to the oppression, O oh Allah. Put an end to the injustice, O oh Allah. Put an end to the indiscriminate killing, O oh Allah. Put an end to the genocide, O oh Allah. O oh Allah, grant humans humanity, O oh Allah. O oh Allah, grant them humanity, O oh Allah. Allow them to feel empathy and compassion for other human beings, O oh Allah. O oh Allah, they are even killing their own people, O oh Allah. Give them an understanding, O oh Allah. Open their eyes, O oh Allah. Show them the truth, O oh Allah. Enlighten them, O oh Allah. Allow the Ummah to stand up and stand up against injustice, O oh Allah, and to call it what it is, O oh Allah. O oh Allah, to allow them to understand, O oh Allah. Put an end to the occupation, O oh Allah, and grant freedom and liberation to Palestine, O oh Allah, to Palestinians, O oh Allah, to Masjid al Aqsa, O oh Allah. Put an end to the evil occupation, O oh Allah, so that Muslims throughout the world can pray freely in Masjid al Aqsa whilst it is liberated, O oh Allah. Grant us all the tawfiq, O oh Allah. 
Oh Allah, a time will come when we all have to leave the world, oh Allah. Make our last day our best day, oh Allah. Make our final action our best action, oh Allah. Grant us death with Iman and Islam, oh Allah. Grant us a death of Shahada, oh Allah. Grant us a death of Shahada, oh Allah. Grant us a death whilst in sujood, oh Allah. Grant us a death whilst in your house, oh Allah. Grant us death whilst reciting the Quran, oh Allah. Grant us death in a way that we have made complete sincere repentance, oh Allah. You are pleased with us and we are pleased with you, oh Allah. We are adorned with the Sunnah, oh Allah. Our hearts are brimming with your love, oh Allah. We are looking forward to meeting you, oh Allah. And you are looking forward to meeting us, oh Allah. Grant us a pious death, oh Allah. Save God is from an evil death, oh Allah. Save God is from dying in kufr, oh Allah. Save God is from dying in nifaq, oh Allah. Save God is from dying in, a, in, in whilst committing a sin, oh Allah. Help us in those final moments, oh Allah. And in the akhirah, oh Allah. Oh Allah, grant us the shafa'ah of Rasulullah, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Save God us from the fire of Jahannam, oh Allah. Save God us, oh Allah. Save God our parents, oh Allah. Save God our families, oh Allah. Save God the Ummah, O oh Allah, and grant us entry into Jannatul Firdaus, O oh Allah. We are not deserving of your Jannah, O oh Allah, but we beg you through your mercy, O oh Allah. Your mercy is so vast, O oh Allah. We beg you through your mercy, O oh Allah. Grant us Jannatul Firdaus, O oh Allah. Grant us Jannatul Firdaus, O oh Allah. Grant us Jannatul Firdaus, O oh Allah. Allahumma imna nas'aluka min khayri ma sa'alaka minhu nabiyuka Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Wa na'udhu bika min sharri masta'adha minhu nabiyuka Muhammad صلى الله عليه وسلم أنت المستعان وعليك البلاغ ولا حول ولا قوة إلا بالله سبحان ربك رب العزة عما يصفون وسلام على المرسلين والحمد لله رب العالمين